Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh, serve fast, serve friendly, lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. Episode 100 will conclude Oscar's conversation with Reggie Warford. Reggie started his career at Kentucky during a transitional time, but he was surrounded by some great coaches and teammates that ushered in change at Kentucky. In this episode, Reggie describes his relationship with Coach Joe B. Hall, assistant coaches Dick Parsons, Lynn Nance, Jim Hatfield, and Leonard Hamilton. As for teammates, well, let's just say it's the all-nickname team, including the White Rat, Dr. Lurch, the Goose, the Kentucky Long Rifle, and a man they called Quack, who Reggie thought was actually Coach Adolph Rupp. Reggie Warford's life has been the ultimate test of faith, and that's been more evident after his basketball career. His faith has been tested as a player and both as a giver and a recipient of what Reggie considers the greatest gift of all, life. It's not easy for somebody else to summarize Reggie Warford's life. You can't accurately put into words Reggie Warford's life and what life means to him. The only individual capable of doing that is Reggie himself, and he shares his inspirational testimony with you and Oscar. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House, and his guest, Reggie Warford. Reggie, we want to talk about some of the people, how you remember them that interacted with your life here at Kentucky, players, coaches, and things. And and, and let's just start out with uh, uh, your head coach, Joe B. Hall. Well, first of all, I'd like to say I love him. Uh, when I became, as a player, I thought he was tough. Uh, I thought he was too much by the book. I wanted to handle the ball with one hand and take it behind my back. And he taught me that you don't need to do all of that stuff. <laughs> uh, back then, when, when it was, you know, get in a triple threat position and do all of those things. Uh, he he was a, a stickler for that, um, but he was a tough, hard coach. And as I became a coach, I really started to see the wisdom in his decision making. Dick Parsons, if you ever wanted a person to be your best friend, is Coach Parsons. Um, I don't know what he did in his personal life. But everything that I know about him, he was a stand-up guy. Um, I learned things like this. He would go up to the to the weight room uh, up at Shively, and he would get in and he would work. I didn't know this too much later. Mm-hmm. He'd work out and get warmed up because then when we went up to the weight room to get in there, he would come in and put in a lot of weights and knock him out in a few minutes and make <laughs> you feel bad. So you were always trying to catch him. Uh, just a great psychological uh, coach, and I thought just a great sounding sounding board for Lynn Nance. Oh my gosh, Lynn Nance, the FBI. Lynn Lynn Nance, 
uh, not only coached me for the two years, but I went with him to Iowa State University and what and and uh, and and coached with him. And after I graduated, I had a job working in retail. And he gives me a call when he comes in to visit, and he said, "Well, you know, we got Vegas, we got Arizona State, you know, we got uh, Kansas on our schedule, we got, you know, team out of Michigan on our schedule." So. You know, I said, man, I looked at his schedule and I said, golly, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to hire me a guy that can go out and get me some players. <laughs> and I said, who? He said, you. And he said to me. So uh, we started out uh, after they had had a three-win season at Iowa State and got him a couple of players. We had an eight-win season. And at the time that he left the Iowa State program, we, we weren't in the top 20, but we were in the top 40. And we, we were considered moving up. And Johnny Orr took over that team and won a lot of games with players that we left. So we feel, bad, we, we feel, feel badly that we couldn't complete that. But he was, he was a great mentor. Jim Hatfield. Oh, my gosh. Competed against him as a coach a couple of times. But as fine a character – uh, individual as you want to know and always whenever I when I called Coach Hat he would he would give me a call back what do you need Rich and and so I always looked up to him as a mentor as I was in coaching um, Leonard Hamilton well Le Leonard and I and I can't even say Leonard I always called him Coach Ham I love him to this day I thought that uh he would do great if he got a chance in his own program. And he's been a very, very, very successful uh, college coach. And, and I love him. I think he was great. Players, Joey Holland. Joey Holland, who, who autographed my picture of him as the white rat. <laughs> <laughs> Joey wanted to get up under you when he played. He was tough. Um, Sad story, but yes, uh, when when I was being chased by my college girlfriend, Joey would let me use his car to get away. <laughs> Joey is a great man and a great Christian man. Dwayne Casey. Dwayne Casey, um, great teammate, always pulling for you, great competitor. And he was the one guard that um, – that when he came in, I thought was going to be a super player uh, with super contributions because he was so athletic, and I thought he shot it well enough. I think he he was, you know, he was one of those guys that became, you know, institutionalized at Kentucky. Was so busy doing things the right way that if he had ever decided to say the heck with this and I'm going to be me, had all kinds of potential as a ball player. Turned out to be a pretty fair NBA coach. Uh, and I think that's the best kind. The guys with, you know, unrequited uh, issues that he understands and knows how to motivate men. So, You had as a teammate part of your senior year, mm -hmm. come name of Derek Ramsey. <laughs> Ram, uh, you know what? Ram could play basketball now. He, he was a talent. 
But you know what? He chose he chose the right field, the the right uh, profession, and in, in going into football, and was a great tight end, uh, you know, for Oakland. And you know, but you know, I roomed with him a couple of times, and he was a good man. He 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 really was. Danny Howe. God bless Danny. Uh, never knew that he was you know tortured about his playing the, the way he was. Um, <laughs> Can I tell you one Danny Howell story? Sure. We're in Carolina. Mitch Kupchak is the center. I'm guarding Phil Ford. Near the top, they do a little rub as they as in their offense that I have to go across and try to fight my way over the pick. I do this. Kupchak goes down holding his stomach. It's near the end of the half. Call a foul on me. Um... They take me out of the game. Kupchak, he can't, guys, he can't even shoot his free throws. So they send in some little guard to, I think, to shoot his free throws. He's holding his belly. Coach Hall is livid because now we got the crowd really after us and really after me. We go into halftime. He's railing against me, and Coach Hall is yelling at me and being all upset. And then finally, we get ready to go out, and he said, Truman, you're starting the second half. So Danny Hall finally says, Coach, he said, uh, that wasn't Reggie's fault in that Betsy Lane high country accent he had. He said, what do you mean it wasn't Reggie's fault? He said, Coach, uh, when Reggie went by, I stuck my rib, my elbow in Cupcheck rib and popped it. <laughs> I gave him a rib slam. It buckled him to his knees. He said, why would you do that? He said, well, they didn't say it was me. <laughs> Danny, I, I have fond memories of him as, as a guy that was tough and was Kentucky tough. Marion Haskins. Marion Haskins is, is the only guy that I wonder about if he had gone to another program. He's in between... Uh, Kevin Grevy, uh, Goose Gibbons, James Lee. He's caught between the 75 and 78 teams. J Jimmy Dan. But man could score. He could play. He could defend. He He's the one guy that, that – and I know he played some minutes, and I know he got in the games, but I wondered what he would have been like if he had been a guy that you counted on. Because I think that he would have come through for that. Bob Fowler. Bob Fowler was my roommate. Uh, I was put in charge of trying to help him when we were on the road. Uh, Bob was stubborn, uh, but he was a great athlete out of Michigan. He could he could really jump. Had a 44-inch vertical, but he got off to a bad start at Kentucky. He went, he, we're scrimmaging over at State Gym, and we're hanging out and everybody's playing. And Bob is playing really physical, but he's playing really physical against James Lee. So James told him, he said, oh, man, you better tell him to get off me because I'm playing on Bob's team. He said, you better tell him to get off me. I'm going to have to hurt him. And I said, no, no, don't. He said, James, just keep playing two or three times, and Bob made some plays, and he came down. And 
hit Lee. God bless him. Lee was on the ground. And as he started, stood up, he grabbed Bob by the ankle and lifted Bob in the air and dropped him to the ground. Coach is going, Reggie, get him, get him. <laughs> and he takes one hand and he puts it under his knee. He takes the other arm, he puts it under the knee. He pointed at him, he told you, he said, I told you to quit. And he popped him one time with the left hand. Bob Nose moved over to the side of his face. He got up. That was the end of that altercation. And everybody said, well, you should have jumped in. I knew when to jump in with Lee, and that was not <laughs> the time. <laughs> Truman Clater. Oh, shoot. Truman. Truman was a three-year starter? Yeah. God. With the prettiest jump shot they said ever in the history. I jumped higher on my jump shot, although Truman didn't like that. But, boy, was he, he a beautiful jump shot and a very tough competitor. Larry Johnson. The greatest of the most unheralded guards at Kentucky. I think he scored over 1,000 points. He's 6'3". He, or, or he should have scored a right at it. 6'3", could, could play defense with the best of them, and – one of the best ball handlers I've ever seen. Late Mike Phillips. Lurch, Dr. Lurch. Uh, great offensive player. What I couldn't believe is that after Mike passed, there were so many people that knew, that didn't know that he played the guitar. Uh, and we used to get together and, and play uh, country western stuff. Um, Rick Roby. Amazing talent, uh, tough guy, and knew that he was an amazing talent. Uh, Rick got me a tryout with the Boston Celtics. So Rick was a great friend, and I must have three different pictures of me walking off the court and Rick palming my head and rubbing it. I don't know if it was for good luck. I don't know if it just made him look good, but he was always doing that. Jack Givens. One of the, one of the most gifted uh, players to, to be at Kentucky. And I think what people may have underestimated about Goose is that his underlying competitiveness. Goose I, was not going to fight you. I know. I tried to fight him. He wouldn't fight me. Oh, man, I ain't fighting And more than once. But when it comes to playing – yeah, I'll play you. And he, he didn't care who or when. So just a great guy. And actually, he and Dwayne were in my wedding. So Jerry Hale. Jerry Hale is Mr. Kentucky. So the, the, the moniker previously held uh, uh, by uh, Bill Kitely uh, is Bill Kitely was Mr. Kentucky. To me, Jerry Hale is Mr. Kentucky now. G.J. Smith. The Kentucky Long Rifle. Uh, introduced him to his wife. Uh, G.J. was the shyest guy that you'd ever see. So by the time that he actually opened up and talked to me, 
we were really good friends, and I'm sorry of his past. You mentioned earlier again Bob Guyett. Bob Guyett, uh, the smartest guy that I've ever, you know, been around. I mean, is obviously with his road scholar and other background. Great player, great player. Jimmy Dan Connor. Patrick Swayze in basketball sneakers. Um, every kid, every mother, every girl wanted to have somebody in their family like Jimmy Dan Connor. And J.D. has lived his life like that. One of the guys that I respect most about everything that he's that he became and what he is today. And uh, just a, a quiet Kentucky gentleman. It just really is. Mike Flynn. Mike Flynn, the Hoosier. <laughs> Mike Flynn did a difficult thing coming to Kentucky, I think. And I think that Mike was a great player, um, great defensive player, great point guard. You know, a lot of these guys played past college, so you, you know that they were – outstanding individuals he and by the way the only difference uh with mike is he was off campus because he was married as a player so we didn't have a chance to to go out and get wild like we used to so not me of course i didn't get wild. kevin greevy <laughs> kevin greevy uh he was he was the jokester of the team he uh he could play – not not jokes, that's not complimentary enough. He was a prankster. He was a, a good man, a great, great player. And uh, he treated it uh, as a superstar. He was about as matter-of-fact as you ever got. Ray Edelman. Oh, the great shooter. The, uh, a great shooter that came in from, from Pennsylvania. Ray was so far – Ahead of me when I when I when I came in and I looked, uh, I thought that he was the. Uh, I looked at him play and pick up, and I felt like, boy, this is guy's a starter. You know, I really did. Rick Drutz. You know what? Again, he came in with Tom Parker, a great scorer, with Kevin Greavy, and you know that's a. I'm glad they all went to Kentucky, but if Rick Drewitz had ever gone to any other school, he would have been a thousand point scorer or more. That's what I believe. Ronnie Lyons. Ronnie Lyons. <laughs> Ronnie was the guy that could do all the stuff that you wanted to do. He's the guy that could put the ball between his legs or behind his back or do a no look pass, and the coach would think. Boy, he just did that, you know, from the triple threat position. And, a, a, you know, a quiet guy, but a, but a great competitor and a great teammate. Reaching way, way back into history, I'm going to bring up a name that modern-day people probably never heard of, but this is a guy that showed up to help recruit you, and you misinterpreted the fact that you thought he was Adolph Rupp. <laughs> Donald Quack Butler. Well – Mr. Butler came down to uh, a practice. We were told that Kentucky was coming in 
my my high school coach could hardly contain himself. So he made it so that he was going to highlight uh, all the guys that could shoot and all the guys that could jump, and I could do a little of both. So what he did was he, you know, Quack came in. He's in a little suit. To me, I thought he was, and the team, we thought he was Adolph Rupp. So he says hi to the coach and takes a seat in the stands, and we put on a show for him. We're doing dunks, and, well, I'm doing dunks, so I'm the only one dunk, but I'm throwing it off the backboard. and Guys are throwing lobs and shooting just ridiculously deep shots. And uh, after it was over with, Quack came to me and he said, Reggie said, uh, can you t- play with 15 white boys? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, can you play with 15 white boys? I said, well, can they play with me? Because <laughs> I thought that I was, <laughs> yes. And, and, and you know, he laughed about it. Uh, they had the Kentucky East-West game. And he made me a captain of that game that he was running then. And it was played in the Coliseum. And the first shot that I hit in the Coliseum was a half-court shot with about four seconds left. And they got it to me on a fast break, and I shot a jump shot and and made it. And uh, that was the beginning of my career. But Quack was a funny guy. He came in to see about me to make sure that I was all right. And uh, he always, you know, I got to say, Quack reminded me of a guy like Danny DeVito. (laughs) You know, he's just, just not quite all the way mafia, but just a little bit, hey, you know, come over here, I got something to tell you, you know. <laughs> but I loved him dearly, yes. Your most memorable moment during your career at Kentucky? Uh, wow. That's a lot. Um, My wife just gave me an assist, like she often does, the most memorable. And she had to remind me of this, is the first time we had five African-American players on the court. And uh, that was uh, Larry Johnson, myself were at the guards, James Lee was at the post, Marion Haskins, and Goose Gibbons. And I was the last one to go in the game my junior year. And I stopped and I paused because I wanted to, ooh, I wanted to savor that moment. And you know what? I don't know if anybody else cared, I, I, but I cared because i never seen that. And I had a guy played against once. I'll tell his name because he's a Notre Dame guy, Gary Brokaw. And you remember Gary, great guard. So I get in the game against Notre Dame, and we're at the free throw line, and he's next to me. And he says, uh, are you the only brother on the team? And at the time I said, well, yes, I am. He said, okay. He said, I'm not going to bust you like I'm going to do these other guys. (laughs) I, I remember that, and I said, you know, there there needs to be a comeback for that, but I don't have any at this time. 
if you had your career and your life to do completely over, is there anything you would have done differently at any point in time? For any of the shortcomings I have, I'd like to correct them. Whether that be as a father, as a husband, as a brother, as an uncle, I would fix that. Um, I wish more people knew my story. Um, and, and not for all the reasons that you, you might think, is that it's, it's a story. It's, it's one of many, but it's a story. And, and I've been blessed to be in the presence of great athletes, great people, um, great coaches, you know, my high school coach, I, I had a coach, my high school coach or, and all those folks, they were absolutely great. So, so, so that's, I mean, that, that's, that I would change. I'd change my health condition. I never smoked, I never drank, and I never did drugs. So I was never, I never thought that I would get to here. Outside your family, your parents, your wife, your children, Who's been the most in inspirational person in your life? Uh, well, there's been these <laughs> three senior ladies that, that I think about a lot and, and uh, uh, that have been there to push me and correct me when I've, if I should fall off the, the trail a little bit. Um, Velma Cottrell, a lady that nobody knows who she is. She's a homebound. She's been for 15 years, but she always is quick to pick up the phone and make me check myself. Uh, Patty Eister, who was a friend of the Kentucky program when I came here, and Patty was like a mother to me the whole time, my career, and even afterwards. As a matter of fact, her minister husband, uh, Reverend Birdeister, I threatened him when they got married that he should never ever hurt my friend. And the wife of my high school coach, Glenda Harper, she, um, I didn't know her well because back then you didn't, you didn't know, you know, people's wives then. But after I went back to Muhlenberg County, and uh, I think our relationship changed when I did his eulogy for the for the players that had played, and she thought that was special, and her son thought that was special. So they've been great friends. Um, and the other people that keep me straight uh, in this room is, you know, um, Marissa. There's a reason I call her affectionately the boss because she uh, is tough and that's been needed to take care of me. And my sons who I hope are involving into the kind of good people we want. If you were standing at Rupp Arena 
front of 23,000 people and they handed you the mic, what would come out of your mouth? Thank you for all you do for every Kentucky player that's known and unknown. Thank you for all your support. And thank you for being great Kentucky fan. And, and, and the reason that would come out, Oscar, is this. I can't, how can you ask for anything? Everything that I have to say revolves around thanks and, and, and grace. Uh, you know, do you know, do that. You know, do that stuff. Now, <laughs> I was going to say something was going to be bad, and I felt a vibe, so I'm good. But this is a this is a great place to play. Don't forget your. You know, don't forget your players. You know, don't do that. How much has your faith been tested over these last 25 years, the illnesses you've fought? Well, I thought my, test, my faith was tested when I was a player, and it wasn't. Because what I, what I did learn is you can say things in anger, and you can do things in anger, but you need to change that anger to love when you can. And I've tried to do that. So everyone that I thought, as I said before, that I had offended, there's been a lot of people that's gotten calls from me just to say, listen, if I messed up when I knew you or when we were hanging together, I'm sorry. So I, I, I don't feel... I don't feel anything other than, boy, what a magnificent, wonderful life. I feel like I've been right in the middle of Forrest Gump and I've had all these things, <laughs> great things. I mean, I've played piano with Muhammad Ali. I've, you know, I hung out with Bob Lanier doing the NBA and, and uh, when they were in there. They asked me about guarding uh, the guard to guard, whether you could put your hands on them. And I told him, I said, I was in, in my 50s then. I said, if you let a guy get across half court and I can't tag him or touch him, I said, I'll come out of retirement because you can't guard me that way. So they tried it and they experimented with it. And they had these games that were four hours long and marathons, and then they changed it back. So those things that people don't know that I felt like, you know, I've influenced them. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. I would be a better provider for my family. You know, I'd I, I do that. i turn down some situations that, you know, when you don't know, you don't know, and that's that was me. Most guys think when they're young that when they get through with college, their life is pretty much over. <laughs> uh, yours just began, and, and I've got to touch – one little period here where when you left, you become a coach, you got in the coaching world, uh, you got into the, some situations that makes today's things show all the way back to the 40s and the 50s, even here at Kentucky. But you become assistant coach and mm -hmm. you coached at 
Pittsburgh as an assistant. Yes, sir. And you were recruiting in Lexington at one time. Yes, sir. And there was an incident, I think it was on Maxwell Street. Is that correct? Yes. Where the apartment caught on fire. Yes. What do you remember about that, and how did that change your life? Uh, we were – my head coach, uh, Roy Chipman, and I, Dr. Chipman, we were driving from Louisville. Well, we had been down to see Flanoil Crook, uh, the great forward from uh, from Louisville, and, and uh, left there thinking we got no shot. So we're on our way to Lexington, and we're supposed to have a meeting set up uh, with uh, our family here in Lexington. And was that around the Steve Miller era? Yes, sir. And, yeah, and so we uh, were we're coming down Maxwell, and Doctor Chipman and I were telling jokes. We're telling stories, and he was a particularly good joke teller. So he said something, and I was driving, and I looked over to the right, and as I see him, I could see a window and the flames were already up through the window. And I said, Doc, that's house on fire. And so he said, well, let's let's get over there. So I went across three lanes and parked, backed up a little bit and then ran the rest of the way. And we get there and we could see clearly that the house. This is at nighttime. Uh, this was in the evening, about six o'clock. Yeah. And so, uh, and so there's a little, there's a kid, 12, 13 years old in the next yard, and he's just playing. And I'm surprised that nobody said the So we go to the, to the front door, and we can see the flames in, and we're going to break down the door because it, it was locked. And he got on one side, and I got on the other side. He got on the side where the door jam is. And he ran, we ran into the door at the same time, hit the door. He hurt his shoulder really bad. He suffered from that for a long time. And so I stepped back, and, and I didn't want to break. I just want to try to break open the door off the hinge. But then he said, "Just Reggie, just get it down. So I, I kicked in the door. And when the door came open, you know how that oxygen hit and everything goes up real quick? It was like two steps, and there was a space heater that had like folded outward like this, and everything around it. And there was we saw uh, a, a gentleman and a and a lady, and they were they were out. And I picked up the lady first, and I carried her out and put her on the ground. <laughs> I told the kid, I said, "Get us some water," <laughs> and he comes back. <laughs> Glass of water, I'm in a hose. <laughs> and then I went in and I grabbed, uh, I grabbed the gentleman and came out. And and this is the thing: if I hadn't done this, I don't think anybody would have ever known what was going on. Uh, at that time, I was still not like you say now, Oscar, fat. Uh, <laughs> I was in shape then, and there was a planter that had dirt in it that had to weigh a couple of hundred pounds, one of those big uh, lead, mm -hmm. you know, planters that you put out in the house. And I picked that up, and Chipman's eyes got really big. Adrenaline, whatever it was, I picked it up, went through the door, 
and dumped it in mass over the fly, fire that was on the floor mm-hmm. and dumped all the dirt out there. There was stuff going on inside the house, and we were trying to pull those things down. The fire department comes. I said, no, we don't live here. And I said, I broke a window in back. I thought there was somebody in back. I did that and broke a window. So we leave. Go back to the hotel. I had planned to meet Jack and James to go out for a little bit and decided not to do it. Went to my room, started working on some recruiting things, and made our little stop. Didn't go successful, so I started to go. I went to Maryland, and I'm in Maryland in my hotel room, and I'm watching ESPN, and I see my face on ESPN. Now, if you're traveling and you see your face on ESPN, you think, oh, my gosh, I've been fired or I got killed. (laughs) That's the only way you end up on ESPN if you're an assistant coach. And they had the full uh, story of what happened as told to by Dr. Chipman. When he got back to Pittsburgh, he told, uh, started telling some people and uh, Dean Billick, one of Coach Chipman's good friends, had been SID. And he said, you got to let people know. He said, that's a really heroic thing. So stuff started happening, and I get a family here. Uh, Patty Eister, um, uh, married to Reverend Bert Eister. They took my story to John Y. Brown. And John Y. Brown thought it was of sufficient quality that he nominated me and and gave me the Kentucky Medal of Valor, one of the most prized things that I that I have. And along with that, uh, I got a letter of accommodation from uh, of commendation from President Reagan. I was the I Man of the Year in Pittsburgh at that time, which was really nice. And something my wife Marissa is not happy with this to this day. When I went to uh when I went to uh, the Coors uh place in Colorado, they said, Coach, anything you want, anything, you know, you, you want beer, the rest what do you want? Well, I wasn't a drinker. So they offered me beer for the a card that could get beer for the rest of my life. And I said, no. <laughs> now, that's the only time that she's thought about divorcing me. Yeah. How could you be so? <laughs> but that was one of the things that... that uh, Both of those people lived. Yes, they did live. And did you ever get to meet them again? No, I never did. And uh, they were elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, w- it was funny because... You know, I I did lift weights a lot, so I I did the fireman's carry for one, and I actually picked the other up in my, in my arms and able to do that. So. That's been it's got to been thirty years ago or more. Nineteen eighty-five. Okay, so thirty-five years ago, thirty-four. Okay. Looking back over those thirty-five years, yes, sir. Has there been anything that uh, has affected you more, or you felt prouder of? 
than saving someone's life. Yes, giving someone life. That leads us into the next thing. Because, <laughs> Reggie, you, you've gone through so much pain and suffering. You were on the transplant list for so many years for a heart. Yeah. And then you finally got, not to the week or the day, but literally on the table. Yes. Only to when you wake up, you find out you don't have a new heart. Yes. Tell me about that experience and your oh. whole ordeal. Well, you know, when, you, when they come in, what you, a lot of people don't realize is that you're not the only one needing a heart that there are other people in your house, hospital, and those doctors are looking at that person also. So uh, the heart was coming from a gentleman who had been in a uh, train wreck. He, They just said he tried to beat the train. So they go down, they tell me, and they give you about about six hours to prepare, and they... When they do a transplant, they have to have all the viable organs accounted for. So if you have a kidney in, in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, or you have a, a, a lung, partial lung in Charleston, West Virginia, if you have eye corneas in, uh, that need it in, in uh, Philadelphia, off of this one... A uh, person, eight people's lives can be drastically changed, not including skin grafts and other things that they can actually do with people who are deceased. And so um, when they come in, they bring your family down with you. My wife actually spent most of that time by herself with me. And uh, so we, you know, we talk about what's, it, what's coming and they introduce you to the anesthesiologist and you know she was very very nice and wanted to put you at ease and when it's time to go um, you kiss your loved ones goodbye you go into the room and it's a room of silver and blue um, it is extremely cold I I'm talking about and you are exposed. Um, I saw the equipment that was going to be used. So when they were going through it, when they tell you to count, you don't get any further than 98. So you're out. So I wake up, and I, I'm thinking that I am standing straight up with my arms out. And I think I see all these people, my doctor, my wife, uh, nurses, uh, transplant people, they're all in, in the room. And I can't understand why. I'm, I'm, not, I'm still in a little bit of a fog. And all I can hear him say is, you didn't get your heart. You didn't get your heart. And, I, and I'm thinking because my arms are out. And I can feel the metal in my chest. I, I can feel that I'm 
sold up. I can feel the pressure of my sternum pushing on, on that metal. And I said, wait a minute, this, this is a dream. This, this is not right. And I think it was Mar Marissa that said, honey, you didn't get your heart. And she stepped out and she was crying and she said, you didn't get your heart. So I said, okay, I need to just go to sleep. <laughs> so I, you know, I just said, that's enough. <laughs> I don't need to hear that. How long were you on the waiting list when you uh, had your first attempt at getting a new heart? I, I was four years uh, waiting um, after I was told I was going to need a heart. And then they bring you in for a process that uh, they give you what's called a swan. And a swan is basically is an IV that goes through your carotid arteries. Um, and you get them switched each week until you get a heart. Um, I went in the hospital in July looking for a heart. I got out for a couple of days to help my son find a school to go to. I go right back in the hospital. And from, like I said, I'd known I would need a heart, but until they do that, put those swans in your neck. And as the process goes, you have this procedure done every week. Uh, a lot of this was done in Pittsburgh? All of it was done at Pittsburgh at Presbyterian Hospital. And so um, I don't know how many exactly times that they did that, but at one point they had to put swans on both sides of my neck. And they looked for uh, a heart that would, would match. And this is going to, I know what this is going to sound like, and, you know, people going to poo-poo it and say, you know, you making something be more dramatic. You know, I don't need to make my health dramatic. But my, I thought my mom and dad were O positive. I thought I was O positive. When I had my initial surgery, I was O positive. So they're doing, they they done the, put me on the list. And there's different gradients on the list that you can go to. Well, if you're O positive, you go further down on the list. And I was going further down on the list and getting sicker and sicker, you know, by the, by the week. Eventually, they're doing blood tests. And my wife can testify and verify to this. They came in and said, well, you know, what, what's your blood type? I said, oh, positive. They said, no, it's not. And I said, what? I said, you need to check that because it's O positive. And they said, no, it's A positive. So in A positive, I moved up to number three on the list. When you woke up and you first could communicate with your doctors after uh the first attempt, first of all, what happened on the match that you weren't able to get it? And secondly, how did they break the news to you and what was your thought at that point in time? 
I was out on the table. And when they take the heart that they're going to implant, first of all, they cut the sternum and open up the chest. They get the things ready to remove the heart that's in there, and they're at that part. They need to get the heart to beat at least three times by stimulating on separate occasions. First time it beat, second it didn't, and third it didn't. They're running out of time. The surgeon, uh, Dr. Bermudez, went up to Dr. McNamara, or had someone call Dr. McNamara, and say to him that we have a problem with Reggie, we can't get the heart to beat, but I'm going to put it in anyway and, and try to get it to beat once it ends. He said, wait. He comes downstairs, he gets in there, he says, no, don't do it, we're going to find him another heart. What they found out when they biopsied the heart was on the other side, the heart had received a massive trauma, and it was blue and purple and would never have worked. Had they pl implanted that heart, I would have died. They apologized and cried to my, to my wife about you know, how sorry they were that they went through all of this, and, and I didn't get a heart. And because they had kept me open, I was still getting sicker. And so uh, it, it <laughs> my wife and I had a, had a conversation. She never missed a day. She never missed a day of seeing me at least eight hours, ten hours. If she did nothing but sit, she stayed there every single day from July to December 5th, every day. And what year was that? 2014. And she did her work, did everything she's supposed to do, raised her sons, did everything. And there was a point when I said to them, I can't do this anymore. And I was tired. And so my, my it was a Saturday night, and it was Sunday morning, morning coming. I knew she's coming early after church, after mass. And she would, I had the room set up. I had just hundreds and hundreds of get well wishes and cards, so many that they, covered every part of every wall and door and window in, in, in my hospital room. I had so much stuff in there. It just it like, felt like a botanical garden, everybody sending so much nice things. But I'd had enough, and I'd lived enough. So I told my nurses, listen, I'm not doing this. I got to tell my wife. And then we'll tell the surgeon together. So she came in on that Sunday morning, and she uh, doesn't know what's happening. And I have a chair that's facing me as my bed is this way. She's to my left. And they had put stuff around the door so nobody could see in, windows nobody could see in. And I told them I didn't want to be bothered. What I didn't tell you was that I had a gentleman that I met by the name of Tom Picone. And Tom 
was on the heart transplant list also. He's a judge up in Beaver County in Pennsylvania. 68, 69 years old. So what I didn't know is that Tom had been in surgery. And the, it went perfect for him. And he had awakened. So I'm telling my wife why that I don't want to keep on. She'd be in good shape to take care of the boys. She would get help. She could, you know, you know, I'm going to be more pain than, you know, just right now. So let's just quit. So we're both crying, and <laughs> we get a knock on the door, and I'm saying, not now, not now. said, get a knock on the door. Not, not now. said, Reggie, just one minute. Just, just let me, one minute, can I stick my head in the door? It's three nurses. And they said, when they opened the door, they said, Reggie, Tom told me to tell you that it's worth it. He said it's worth it. And I was ready to call it in, call it a day. And my wife looked at me with a big old smile. She said, see, I told you God wasn't done with you yet. Said, how can you pull the plug on yourself now when Tom has already told you it's worth it? Tom was out of the hospital in eight days. Eight days. And walked out on his own. Uh, two weeks later, I had my second opportunity to get a heart. And the doctor went himself to the place to ensure that the heart was workable. And they came back, and I'm, I don't have particularly good thoughts about, about that, that day as, as I, because I had been through all the, the warm-up procedure, and, and so I'm not sure how this other one is going to go. And they ran into all kinds of complications. My heart was open in my chest for four or five days. So if you came to see me, I was setting up with all the stuff on my head and my mouth and my chest still opened. They had a, a film, a yellow film that uh, they flapped, that they put over the heart. So if they wanted to do something to it, they would raise that up and then work on. Uh, my wife was in the room in the intensive care and she said that I bled from every orifice in my body, my eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth, everything. And, and somehow, I'm here today. Somehow. You've, uh, you've enjoyed some good years since then. Yes, sir. Uh, You've had a few setbacks. Major, yes, sir. Uh, where are you today? Today I woke up next to my wife, and I'm here. Uh, we've made 
all the preparations that that need to be made. Um, it it makes me sad sometimes of of the days that when you're not when you're not uncomfortable when you're not in pain and you you feel like you're missing that there's going to be some laughs and some smiles and some jokes and some things that you're going to miss but Oscar I don't know how else the story can be written I I'm I'm in a good place when people write history books 25, 50 years from now, and they talk about the history of Kentucky, history of Kentucky basketball, and they filter through chapters of important eras, and they come upon the chapter of Reggie Warford. What do you hope they'll remember most about you? that in effect that I was a pioneer of sorts. Uh, nobody, no one comes to Kentucky that can't play. There's just better players, you know. So there's there's uh, all the guys that ended up here were good players. I'd like them to consider me that. Uh, I would like them to consider that that I carried myself with with integrity my entire time here at in in Lexington and in Kentucky. Uh, I want people to know that, boy, you know what, he turned out to be a really good example for his family, that his his wife has, has the utmost confidence and respect for him, and his sons were raised the correct way, that he said the things that he meant, that he was a man that loved God. Above all things, I want them to know that. You've just finished listening to episode 100 of Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. This episode concludes Oscar's conversation with Reggie Warford. Part one of Oscar's conversation with Reggie is available at oscarcombs.com as well as others. If you're looking for episodes with Kentucky coaches, 9, 10, 11, and 12 feature coach Joby Hall, and Jim Hatfield is episodes 38 and 39. Derek Cord is episode 17. Jack Givens is episode 45. Larry Johnson is episodes 46 and 47. Jerry Hale is episodes 61 and 62. Derek Ramsey, he's episodes 86, 87, and 88. And Kevin Grevy is episodes 94 and 95. All of these episodes are available for your mobile devices through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Just search for at Wildcat News, subscribe, and new and old episodes can be downloaded for free. To keep track of the cats, follow Oscar on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. On behalf of Reggie Warford and his family, and also Oscar, I'm Bo Robinson, and my sincere thanks to all of the Big Blue Nation for listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs. Presented by Rafferty's and Double Dog's Chow House. And as always, go Big Blue.